We're going to be reading Psalm 86 this morning. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent man have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you would bow with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for uh, hearts to receive what you have to say. We do believe it is your word. It's infallible and errant. That it speaks to people, people who are separated from you, people who do not understand the gospel, people who are walking in darkness, people who are dead in their sins. We know that by your word and through the spirit, you bring people like that to life. We know that we have people here today that may not know you. We ask that you would, by your spirit's power, through your word, bring them to life. Lord, we also know that there are believers here who love and cherish you, who want to live for you, but who, like all of us, have tendencies to wonder. And I just pray that you would move their hearts and draw them back to where they need to be for your name and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. David Foster Wallace in 2005 gave a commencement address and shortly after he took his own life. But what he said in that address, many would call prophetic. He wasn't a Christian. But when you listen to his words, you're like, wow, this is shocking. He says everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And choosing a God or spiritual type thing in worship is compelling because anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty, you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over things to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid, like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing, this is kind of like, when you think about that, about all these forms of worship, they are unconscious. Like you're not aware of them. They're like your default setting. You don't really know. It's hard to see, like Jeremiah says, it's hard to look into your heart. It's hard to know your heart, to understand your heart. It's desperately wicked, and it, it's, it's, it's at all turns kind of hiding itself from you. So I think it's important when you think about this and you're considering your life, without a conversion of your whole being, we're inclined to worship everything but the living and true God. It's just, it's, it's in our default setting to move in a certain way, to do certain things, and therefore you find yourself constantly doing those things. And even if, again, if you are rescued from God, by God and you are redeemed, you're still struggling in many of those ways and may not ever really understand it. We are today going to look at 86 and 87. I decided to put 87 on with it. It's a very short psalm. We're just going to spend a little bit of time, but hopefully in, in it, and so hopefully that will you know, be helpful. Um, in these two psalms, we are encouraged to drink deeply from those springs of life, like from God, like you're encouraged to draw near to Him and to drink deeply from Him, and, and really, because that is what's going to satisfy you, and that, that's what you're striving to do in this life and into eternity. So David is going to be the emphasis at the first part when we look at this first psalm, and he's in a desperate condition, and he is kind of calling out to God, but then we will see the nations come and worship uh, in the next psalm, in the end. And so I think it's important to understand that and to see that as we get started. I had an older friend one time say, um, when you're young, and I probably mentioned this to you, when you're young, you think the goal in life is to be strong. I mean, occasionally you'll meet somebody that's older and they still think that the goal in life is to be strong. But the reality is, he said, as a Christian, like, you're, you're really, you're growing in weakness. That means you're growing in a desire to say, I, I trust in the Lord. Lord, let me see my weakness so that I am finding strength in you. That's really what we're trying to pursue. And so you need to drink deeply from the well that God has provided so that you really can be satisfied and filled and protected and guarded instead of trusting in yourself. So Psalm 86 and 87 um, will show us that. The first section of 86, you'll see kind of like David's thinking about the character of God and he's prompted to pray. Then you move on forward and it prompts worship. And then he comes back to prayer and then the last part of, or in chapter 87, there's kind of this prompting to sing and dance. And so we're going to talk about all that stuff and kind of help you. If you're not a dancer, you might be like, I don't know what that's going to be like. Well, you will in the future. If you don't dance good now, you know, you're not really big, you know, you will in the future. I think that's kind of what we see happening. But anyway, Psalm 86 and 87, drink from the springs of life, what I would say today and forever. And you look at this prayer here. The first thing you see in the prayer and psalm really is you're thinking about it, you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, 
we left David in the past in, in the Psalms, like 72 kind of was a conclusion with David, and now David is brought back up. And some people are saying, like, why in book three of the Psalter, why is he brought back to the forefront? And I think it is tied to the future King David. I think David is praying, but I think it's put in there structurally to remind you, like, there's all this stuff going on in these Psalms in book three where you're like, uh, there's all this trouble and, and the temple was attacked and all that kind of stuff, and yet there's this looking for this coming David that will come, the one greater than David, one part of the Davidic line. And so I think it is pointing us to Jesus. And so I think that's helpful for you to know. So you start this psalm. In verse 1, it says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Um, I don't know if you've ever, like sometimes one of my kids will come up and whisper in my ear. You know, or I might whisper in there and be like, now don't tell your brothers in a funny way. Like, don't tell your brothers, but, you know, just kind of messing with them. Or they'll whisper in my ear, I think we need to do this today. You know, they're kind of like, and it's a way of drawing my attention. And uh, he says, Lord, incline your ear. It's almost like lean down and let, listen to exactly, not as if God can't, but it's a, a visual thing of saying like, he's, he, he, he calls out to God and he says, and answer me. Um, this is an interesting thing too when you think about it because he, you almost think, like he's commanding God. These are commands. And you're like, what? But it's not, it's an, it's an inferior to a superior. But it's still, he's saying like, do this. You answer me, Lord. You know, and, and it's not, like I said, I don't think it's in a way where it's like testing the Lord, but it's like the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a command, but it's one where you're coming to one who can actually answer the prayer. It also shows you that he has confidence that he will. This is hard for me. I don't know if that's hard for you. It's hard for me. Because sometimes I want to say like, I don't know what he's going to do. Lord, I mean, and I think that's right at some level to say, I don't know what the Lord wants to do in this situation. I think there's a, a level of humility, but then there's another side of this where you're saying, like, when you're thinking about his character, it does give confidence. I mean, it gives you confidence to pray. If you have a, a, a bad prayer life, it may have something to do with what you believe about God. I mean, that's when you're struggling with that because you're, you, you probably... Uh, Think maybe in terms of like what I'm saying is not important. Uh, he's not always wanting to listen. He doesn't really like to answer me, which would be kind of what I might think sometimes. Sometimes, of course, in a right way, you question like should should he answer this request? Because there are some things that we come to him with that are not really things that that he is uh, inclined to answer. But either way, I think it's important to kind of remind ourselves like we are we are. Uh, can draw close to him. He says in verse 2, and we're not going to look at the second half of each one of these verses, but because I want you to look closer at these commands. He says, preserve my life. Because these, in verse 14, these bad folks have come up against him. So preserve my life. And then he goes on and says, save your servant. He's saying, deliver me. It's a very direct prayer, like where he is saying these things to God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. It's interesting because in verse 16, he's going to say that again. There's a certain level of repetition where he's reminding, Lord, remember. And, and again, it's tied to what he thinks about God. Every, your prayer life will reveal what you believe about God, about his character. It's driving his prayer. Look at verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. Like, 
make my heart glad. That, that, that's something maybe you might walk around and think, you know, if you're a Christian person, I should be sad or somber, but he's saying, gladden my heart. Like, make my heart glad in you. If you don't like your job, it's hard to be glad, right? But the, the Lord, I think in those mundane things like work, gladden, make me happy in these things. You might say, I have small children who are fighting all the time. How can I be glad in that moment? Like, and so I think it is important to say, like, he's walking through difficulty. Uh, others do. If you're difficult, like you have a difficult marriage right now, gladden my heart, uh, gladden the soul of your servant. There's something there where you're saying, like, Lord, you've got to, like, bring me to this place of being able to come up out of those circumstances and rejoice. And only you can do that. I need your strength to do that is kind of the idea. Some of you may have said, like, look, I'm dealing with massive health concerns, and you're saying pray for gladness? I'd say, yeah, pray for gladness. Pray for gladness. Because of the character of God. Because of the character of God, you know him. Verse 6, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea. It's like a repetition of verse 1. Listen to what I'm, I'm praying to you, what I'm asking of you. Now let's go back to verse 1. You'll see, glad my heart, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. This is always a nice place, because you and I do, I think about the Beatitudes again, where it's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those things help you when you're thinking about um, your, your life and you're considering things. He's not saying, I have everything together. That's not what he's saying. I have the best life. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, I am poor and needy. In, in the, if you were looking at the Beatitudes, you would say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Help me. Preserve my life for I am godly. That's another kind of thing where you say, well, what's he saying there? This word, this Hebrew term is very close to uh, hesed, which you probably know, loyal love, God's steadfast love. Uh, the idea here is maybe best, you know, it's like I, I'm marked by your steadfast love. I'm one of your godly ones. I'm one of your kind of like one of your people. So, so preserve my life. He goes on, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. There's this thing where he's saying like, listen, you've, you're, co you're covenantally committed to me. Like when God sets his covenant love on you, he's committed. So the commands follow the commitment. And so when I believe God's done these things, then I can go to him and I can go to him with confidence. Be gracious to me, O Lord, uh, for to you do I cry all day. He's, say, he's not saying, I get up in the morning and think I'm the greatest. I look in the mirror and say, I am the strongest and best and most wonderful person I have ever met in my whole life. So until something goes wrong, I'm going to stand in that way. That will be my default. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, I cry to you. He has set his heart to say, God, I need you. I'm relying on you, not a bunch of other gods, not my own strength, not in the gods of my making, but I rely upon you. Verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So the deepest part of him, what he's driven by, is that as a servant of God, that he is saying, look, I am bringing my whole soul to you. You do this, Lord. I'm asking you to do it. Verse 5. Now, if you want to say, like, Jared, what, what's the character thing? What's the character of God thing that we're looking at? Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. <clears throat> he is going back to uh, Exodus 34. Like when God is explaining who he is to Moses in Exodus 34, what he says is you're, he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. What does that mean? All who are good enough? Is that what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. All who are the best in their field? That's not what he's saying. All who have money so God can like get some of your money? That's not what he's saying. All who are good at sports and athletics? And all, no, that's not what he's saying. He is saying to all who call up on you. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is embracing a whole biblical theology from Exodus 34 all the way throughout in the Romans. We could make a long list of, God's, of people saying, listen, this is what I know to be true of God. I'm not a perfect man, but I know that He is good, He is forgiving, His steadfast love is set upon His people, and I can call out to Him. That's the idea. David's prayers reflect what he believes about God. So if your prayer, Lord, I know that you hate people. You know, you don't love your people. Uh, you're not committed to your people. You want to crush your people. They can't call out to you. Is that going to build a, a strong prayer life? No, because it's unbiblical. It's, it's unbiblical. He's saying like, no, his love, I know he sets his covenant love upon us. I know I can call out to him. I believe in his character. He's a saving God and that he will rescue. Verse 6, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. It, it prompts him. To, to, it moves him. Again, he comes back to that giving ear. And verse 7, you see this confidence. In the day of trouble, I call upon you and you answer me. He's not screening him. That, that's kind of, he can know that. Like we do that. People call me sometimes and be like, look, I just need to make sure you're going to check on this. And be like, what? You think I would ever screen you and put you to the side for a moment? Like you're the most... No, I don't. I mean, I do struggle with that. Sometimes because I'll be in the middle of something. I can't like step out of what I'm thinking about maybe or whatever. But the Lord is able to handle your prayers and my prayers. That's a... He's not like just, oh, I was asleep. He never slumbers or sleeps. So when you're looking at this, you say, look, I want to drink deeply from the well of God's character and who he is, and um, I want to do that both today and forever. I want to understand, look, he prompts us to pray as I understand and reflect on him, but it also prompts him to worship. He says in verse 8, there's none like you among the gods. So this could be like he could be speaking of all the people of his day who... 
all the gods that they're worshiping, all that they've made with their human hands, all the cult worship. He could be talking about that. He could be speaking, for some of you might say, well, he's speaking about the powers behind the powers of all those things, of all human worship and all human endeavor to know God. And he said, look, there's none like you. You actually have the power to do. And not only that, you're not like the God we talked about the other day where he would say, like, I will never forgive. You're not going to have to offer your child to make up for things. You're not going to say, you know, I've done really bad. Here's my kid. Sacrifice my kid. Now you'll be happy with me. He's not like that. You can come to him. He is gracious to forgive and he rescues. Oh, Lord, nor are there any works like yours. He's not like when uh, the prophet was sitting there and he said, like, y'all call out to Baal and ask him to set the thing on fire, you know, the, before you, the, the wood, and let's call out to him and you're screaming out things and you're cutting yourself hoping that he can do what he says he's going to do. No, the one true and living God, he is someone that we can trust because his works prove it both in creation and redemption. You, you can trust him. That he has made this world and he sustains this world and he is going to redeem this world. That's kind of the idea. Verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is a statement of faith, by the way. Just kind of as you think about it. That wasn't happening in David's day, nor are we saying that all the nations are doing so in our day. It's not like we say all the peoples of the earth are worshiping God. He is trusting in the promises of God. It, it, it's causing him to worship. Verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Everyone is going to encounter God, some willingly and some, some today and some in the future will. Some will be willing and some will not. But they will all face the Almighty God. You know, in our world, sometimes the, um, the fog is lifted in adversity or in sickness or in trouble. And you see, oh my goodness, no amount of money will fix this. No amount of earthly power will fix it. I, I had a friend recently said, if it was the money, I would drain my whole account to fix it. But all the the money in the world wouldn't fix the solve the problem. And, and I think it's just important that we understand that. It's like there are things that money can't buy or power on this earth can't buy. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. There is only one who controls and sustains the whole world and we can trust in him. Some will get an opportunity to experience, like I said, seeing God, and, 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 and some are going to live their whole lives abandoning any truth about him. Verse 11, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So here's the deal. Are there areas that you need God to unite your heart in? I mean... That's something I think we have to constantly ask ourselves. Are there hidden places in your life where you are trusting in something other than the Lord? You might not talk about it. 
you might not really um, tell people about it, or maybe you have told some people about it. And, and, and the reality is, is there are areas that everybody, everybody in here, some of you might say, not like me, oh, it's like, come on now, let's be honest, we don't come here without, in, in a state of perfection, we don't live a perfect life. We all have sin in our hearts and in our lives. You, the skeletons in the closet always makes me nervous because it sounds like you buried dead bodies under your house. You know, I'm not saying you've all done that. that, that I understand that, but there are still those places where you're, you're struggling to say, my heart is not united with what I believe. It's, it's part of the human condition. Even as a redeemed person, you are still struggling with sin. So what is he saying? He is praying in, his, in a state of worship here. He's saying, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name in every, uh, every area that you could imagine. So what could be some of those things? You could have hidden bitterness eating you alive you could be uh angry with someone that you won't like deal with that and it's it's all inside of you eating away at you you could have like all types of sin you could have greed in your heart that's just constantly kind of making you not want to see maybe others do well you could have like um uh, have a tendency to like want people to like you and so you're always wearing a mask and you're faking everything you know and every person and every relationship trying to fake them out because you're not being real because your heart is not whole and what you could say about that when you think about it is this a whole heart is one where your thoughts your deepest darkest hopefully there or even good thoughts those thoughts and your actions come together if there's any self-righteous listen up if you're so this morning, if you are really self-righteous and you think that your thoughts and your actions always align, you're a foolish person. Just be honest with yourself and say, that is foolish. We are not like God. That is what it means to be perfect. And so we're, he's praying, God, in those areas, start weeding the garden of my heart and deal with them. That's kind of what he's saying. Verse 12 and 13. I give thanks to you, O Lord, uh, uh, my God, with my whole heart, and I glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. What is he saying? He's saying, man, when I think about God, again, your thoughts about God, everybody here is a theologian, everybody's got thoughts about God, everybody's thinking about different things, and you have these thoughts maybe that have been informed by the Word of God, maybe from a, a weird kind of interpretation of the Word of God. All people have thoughts about God. Well, when you look at him and he thinks about God, he says, for great, he keeps saying this, great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. He keeps saying, God is a God of steadfast love. He sticks with things. He sticks with us. He sets his covenant love upon us, even though we're messed up. Even though there's kind of things really messed up in your head and in your heart. He's still like, he's working those things out. He can come to him and ask for deliverance and keep asking and keep knocking and keep moving forward. Now, he, we start with prayer. 
Then you move to worship, and then the character of God prompts him to pray again because we're still in this concept of like, what's going on? He is dealing with some great issues. Verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not, uh, they do not set you before them. So he's saying the, the people that are just absolute God-rejecting pagans have come upon him. And he uh, really, they're like, they've turned their face away from the presence of God. They do not look to God. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are God that is merciful and gracious. Another interesting thing, if you think about God and you don't think in this way, where he is a God who forgives, you have missed it. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, he's quoting Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, when Moses said, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And when he wanted to see his glory, he was able to see God as he is. God sheltered him from his, his, his glory at some level, but he spoke over him these truths. Let me ask you this. You might say, I know God's like that. My question is, are you like that towards others? That's something you might stop and think. You think, oh, I'm living the Christian life and blah, blah, blah. It's like, but, but do you, is God's heart your heart towards other people? Because it's, if it's not, there's something about that that's really strange. That you're not, like, your default is not, forgiving is not letting things go it's not like it's not letting things go in a bad way but like your your whole it's almost like if you're doing that if you live like that you're holding people to this standard and, and the reality is and, and you're saying something like i i don't really I, I don't need the grace and mercy of god like that wretched person does so i'm going to hold this against them the rest of their life. So you see here, and I think it's just important to know that, that God's steadfast love and faithfulness is on display. We see he's reflecting on the character of God in his prayer, in his worship, then he goes back to prayer. Look at verse 16 and 17. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me see, may see and be put to shame because of you. Lord, have helped me, I'm sorry, you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He sees this. It's on display before him that God has continually and habitually set his heart to rescue his servant. So this, this is kind of, as you're thinking about him, he's drinking from the springs of life. Why do you say that, Jared? We're about to look at this other psalm. He's drinking from the springs of life. He is going down into the depths of the character of God and he is letting that flood his soul. That, that's what's happening. He's saying, flood my soul with that. Let me understand, let me deep drink deeply from that. I need to know that your default setting is to show covenant love to your people, to show graciousness, to be kind to me, to forgive me when I am hateful to forgive me when I'm rebellious to forgive me when I mean you are a God who rescues me over and over from myself it's just a powerful thing so we continue forward and I want you to think about we've seen the character of God kind of prompts him to pray prompts him to worship 
prompts prayer again, and then we're going to jump into another psalm, and we're going to see how like the character of God is going to prompt song and dance. But here's the cool thing. You ready? We're about to look at the end. We're leaving like the way in which you live earth, like in, on earth right now, and you're going to go to the future. I think that's kind of the idea. Is you're leaving this place and you're going to the future and you're going to see there is coming a day when all of your enemies, like David had like enemies from all these people around him, that there are people that are going to come in from all those places and experience the grace and mercy of God and they're all going to be rejoicing before the throne. So let's look at that real quick. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. I want to look at verse 9 and, and 86, then we'll go to 87. All the nations you have made shall come before you and worship, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In this sense, like this is what's going to happen. David's enemies and ours. All, all these people that you think like, that are like uh, so troublesome at the moment are now kind of like coming into Jerusalem. That doesn't mean every nation, every people and every nation will be saved. It just means there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation that are going to be saved. And those who were, now, were once enemies are now brought together is kind of the idea. The prayers regarding enemies, or his enemies, have ceased. The people that we're looking at now in this psalm are in God's kingdom. And all who are trust, have trusted in him from every tribe, tongue, and nation are resounding together in the worship and praise of God. I want you to think about the character of God, and I want you to see the reflection of that and how it transforms us when we leave this earth and move into glory. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. More than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. So you see this celebration here. Among those who, who know me, God speaking, I mention uh, Rehab or Rahab, nickname really for Egypt, and Babylon. They were Israel's kind of superpower neighbors. And then he goes on to Philistia and Tyre and Cush. Again, other nations very close to him, foreigners, those who would give uh, somebody like a king difficulty. And so it says about these people, this one has, was born here. It's, it's a way of saying like the nations now are like being in a way reborn. There are people that are coming to faith. These enemies are now being transformed. Verse 5, 6, and 7. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. So like there's this, this awakening that's taking place among the nations. For the most time self will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people. This one was born there. There, Selah, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Here's the idea. It's almost like there's this record, like the, the, the Lamb's Book of Life, and they're writing these names down of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they are drinking from the springs of life. These singers are saying, this is the place where there's happiness. This is where the place where there's wholeness. This is the place where there's restoration. The character of God now is seen by all of these people and everything is being restored before you. You, you see this new place 
this new city, people in the presence of God rejoicing in Him forever. We live in this new city in part, and we await the future of all that is to come. So what is the springs of life here? Again, it's drinking from the depths of God Himself, drinking from His character and experiencing His salvation. That's the place that satisfies these people. So in your life right now, when you're saying something like, I'm in this troublesome place, and you're crying out to God, and you're worshiping Him, and you cry out again and say, oh God, deliver. This psalm says like He is going to deliver. He is going to deliver. He is going to satisfy. He is going to rescue. And so when I think about that, it's the only place that really does that. And what you see is in the place where the Lord is ultimately bringing his people, there is freedom, there is safety, there is purity, there is wholeness, and there's eternal joy. In that place, everything will be made right. So right now, as you pray, reflect on the character of God, and let that be a springboard for you to look into the future and say, one day all these heavy things, all these heavy burdens will pass away, and I'll be in the presence of the Lord, and, and I will be praising Him and worshiping Him forever. There's a song that some of you may know or may not know, I don't know. It's called Daddy Doesn't Pray Anymore. You never heard that song? Um, he says he's, I guess he's finished talking to the Lord. And um, he said he used to bow his head, you know, and fold his hands and look down. And, and, but he doesn't pray anymore. What he's reflecting on is that daddy doesn't pray anymore because daddy's in the presence of the Lord forevermore. And so I think as we look at this, we look to the present, we look to the future to the day one day when our faith will be sight and we will walk in his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for hearts that are soaring because we know that you are compassionate, that you are forgiving, that you are a gracious God, that you love to rescue us. Your default is to rescue us. And we know, Lord, the ultimate rescue for us will be a place where there'll be no more fear, no more bondage, no more sin, no more perversion in our heads or in our hearts and our, with our hands, no more sadness. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.